Hi, and welcome to the No Baton Needed podcast, the Bay Area music podcast hosted by The Choral Project. My name is Chris Wilmore, and I'm joined today by Daniel Hughes, the artistic director of The Choral Project. Hello. And today we have the unique pleasure of interviewing Barbara Day Turner, who is the artistic director of the San Jose Chamber Orchestra. Barbara, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Great. So let's get started with just a little bit of history about uh, yourself, if that's all right. Could you tell us how you entered into the field of music? Well, from the time I was a small child, I intended to be a brain surgeon. A brain surgeon? A brain surgeon. Um, When I was in sixth grade, my mother had a sort of late, late, um, concept that uh, every one of her four children needed to be stashed in summer school or she was going to uh, need to get rid of them or something. (laughs) The only class that was open was how to read music. So I was in a class in how to read music. I um, then proceeded to sing in the choir in sixth grade where I was told that I was tone deaf, (laughs) kicked out. In uh, going on into middle school, I um, had learned to play piano, and I learned early on to sight read pretty well. And so I became the accompanist, so to keep you know my utter tone deafness away. And came time to graduate from high school, and I had been dared. I was sixteen. I was dared by my friends to audition for music school. So I ended up starting college as a double major in pre med and piano at USC. In the meantime, I'd done a bunch of theater while I was in high school. And I, after about two weeks of the double major, realized that that wasn't going to work. And music was much harder for me at that point. So I decided to drop the pre-med biology track at that point and gave myself a goal of uh, staying in music, pursuing music, until I went uh, more than 90 days without getting paid to perform. So I, once I went 89 days without get, having a paying job, uh, but then never again. So that's how I ended up in music. So what was your journey to becoming part of the San Jose Chamber Orchestra? Well, a long journey. I worked, uh, I worked as uh, the artistic administrator and resident conductor at Opera San Jose for 18 years. In and amongst and around that, I did a lot of musical theater. And while I was at Opera San Jose, we, there were discussions amongst the pit players about how it would be nice to have some sort of outlet for new music or something other than what we did in the pit together, which we loved, but, you know, it was a different thing. So the orchestra was actually formed out of the string players in the pit, and the San Jose Chamber Music Society sponsored our first concert at the Trianon in 1991, and it went very well. And we formed a board shortly after that, and that's how the orchestra was founded. <laughs> uh, I'm just curious, in your musical journey, when did you, when did the path indicate that being a conductor was your destination? Well, that was accidental also. I, I assisted a conductor in Santa Barbara on a production of Fiddler on the Roof, which I was trying to learn to play accordion on as well as playing, and he missed a lot of music, uh, musical rehearsals. And then a lot of stage rehearsals. And so I filled in those, as Daniel, you know, we all often do when we're playing piano for musicals. And after that, 
the company offered me a job to conduct the next year. They offered uh, the conducting of the musical 1776 for the Bicentennial, for the first time that a woman could, would have conducted in the Libero Theater in downtown Santa Barbara. And I somehow didn't feel it necessary to inform them that I had never studied conducting. <laughs> <laughs> so I signed, I signed the contract. And then I went on the conducting teacher and discovered, boy, is it a lot harder than it looks. What did you learn on that production? What did I learn? Um, stubbornness. <laughs> I also, I, that at that point, I knew that that had to be a big part of my life, if at all possible. Well, you've worked with Daniel a good deal. You know, the San Jose Choral Project and the San Jose Chamber Orchestra have joined forces a few times. Um, and I've been very thankful to be, have been a part of that. Um, how did your relationship begin, uh, your, your working relationship as musicians? Well, Daniel's going to have to fill you in on dates and times because I kind of feel like I've always known him. So, Well, I, I was a student at San Jose State, and she was in charge of the orchestra at San Jose State. So I met Barbara in 1990, I think. And the department is small enough and there's enough collaborative things that go on that our paths crossed pretty instantaneously. So what was the first production that you collaborated on? Uh, well, as a student, there, was, there were lots, but at, as are each professionals, you know, separate from each other, uh, it was the Choral Project. She asked the Choral Project to sing on a concert called End Times. She was doing the quartet at the end of time by Messiaen. And, um, we sang In Pace. I had just worked with Barbara at American Musical Theater of San Jose as the assistant music director for Funny Girl. And it was during that run that she got the idea, hey, do you want your choir to come and sing in this concert? And it, it, was, it went so well that we started looking at just doing a winter collaboration every year. That's what happens with all those downtimes when you're in musical theater rehearsals waiting for somebody to block yep. you. Yeah. <laughs> you get bad ideas. You get the, the best ideas. <laughs> So do you think that there's a particular aesthetic or motivation that you two share that's unique to you compared to other musicians? Yes. What's that? Well, I, I think particularly in regard to <clears throat> our, our winter collaboration, it's a very wide lens, universal view of preparing a concert experience that is you know, not necessarily just a number, a number, a number, a number, a number, a number but that really tells a story of acceptance and tolerance and shared celebration of the various holidays around the winter, the end of the year, shared insights. And one of the most remarkable things about the collaboration has been that there are very few examples of collaboration between conductors where the conducting is shared on the concert survived more than a year or two or three. And this is what, Daniel, this has been six, 15, 16 years? I think it's, I think we, we did 16 last year. I think this is 17 this year. Yeah. Well, what's the secret then? I mean, what, what usually causes it to fail? Ego. Oh. <laughs> exactly. Stubbornness, ego. It's, uh, it, it's, it's easy to, to let the podium be more than just a fulcrum. It, <clears throat> I, I find that, well, it, Barbara and I both have a, a collaborative spirit when it comes to just working with our own musicians as well. 
So it's easy to just let that morph into something that's lateral. Because I always feel like the, the, the string players, they've been cultivated in an environment of that open, welcoming, collaborative musical spirit. So when I step up on the podium, I don't feel like any of them look at me as, oh, here's the other guy, or, oh, he's just a choral director. And the singers of the Choral Project don't look at Barbara as, oh, she's, that, she's the instrumental conductor. She doesn't know how to work with voices. It's, it, none of that goes on in the rehearsal. It's just, this is another opportunity just to do something together that's transformative. What would you say is one of the most uh, memorable moments from uh, one of your shows together? Oh, there's a lot. Um, I, I remember the first time that we did uh, Ocho's Candelica. Oh, I remember that. I love that song. Because it was quite an... Uh, besides being exciting and, you know, totally fun to do, it was just an audience explosion at the end of it. I had some friends in the audience and they said they loved that one. It's a great arrangement. We, we love, um, the orchestra loves that we have a number of composers that have done more than one piece for us, including Daniel 5, 6, 7, not counting arrangements, Mike Tucci, um, Annika Galindo, um, various various composers in the area um, so we always love doing those and I remember um, am I getting the title right Daniel the Raven and the Eagle yeah I, was, I think I was I think I was sitting to the side for that one but I, I really love that piece that's a one that I wrote for the Coral Project it's it's a creation story um, that it's it was a really cool concept that I had read and then I turned it into a text. Um, for for me, I, I think that a lot of the collaborations that we've done with guest artists in this concert have also stuck out, um, like Sonos Handbell Ensemble and Taylor Eichstey and um, what is it? the Native American flute player. Why am I missing her last name? Lickitar. Oh, there it is. Right. Yeah. She, uh, that was beautiful. We did a whole solstice themed concert that was just magical. And each one of the concerts ends up having a very particular kind of flavor because of the point of focus. Along those lines, are there any, um, are there any areas that you want to focus on in a future Winter's Gifts concert that you haven't quite hit yet? Oh, probably. <laughs> probably, probably lots. This, this is a, um, about the time of the year that we would be trying to get ourselves settled on that. Obviously, this will be a different year than most of the others. But yeah, we never seem to run out of ideas once we uh, get to the cocktail hour and start discussing that. So I have a question for Barbara. Uh, what was your feeling? What was your reaction to when we first started rehearsing together? Wow, that was a long time ago, Daniel. <laughs> My reaction, and this has only grown through every single year, is the same as the orchestra, which is that the Choral Project is one of their very favorite choirs to work. And I, it, as you know, instrumentalists don't, you know, always feel that way. I, I, <clears throat> I had a reaction of, well, first I'm standing on the podium and, and the downbeat that I had to throw in front of the orchestra in my brain, I'm like, this is vastly the most advanced orchestra that I will have ever conducted. 
and it it was it was just an overwhelming rush of just glory. It's I can't believe that this is really happening. Yeah, sure, joy. You mentioned uh, a second ago that the Winter's Gifts concert this year isn't the the plan is going to be a lot different uh, because of coronavirus. I, I wanted to, to expand on that a little bit. Under current circumstances, how have you been affected as a musician or as an artist? Well, I think that the last full public concert I conducted was in January. So in my adult life, that's certainly the longest period of time I've gone. I've been <laughs> practicing of my instruments, which, you know, has of necessity fallen a bit by the wayside over the years. So uh, suffering a bit from, you know, piano and harpsichord tuning not being considered an essential uh, service. So that's um, particularly on the harpsichord, which, as you all know, doesn't really stay in tune for very long. We've been working with the, the chamber orchestra has seven youth ensembles, uh, five string orchestras, a flute ensemble, and then a, a chamber music program. Those kids had two thirds of their performances canceled uh, because their last big concerts would have been on March 7th. And we made the preemptive, uh, the concert was supposed to be on the 8th and we decided on the 7th to cancel, which was a very wise move retrospect but that's an immense amount of the year so they've been doing uh, distance learning some zoom coaching and then they all learned how to record their parts at home and we assembled you know vir their virtual concert for them it's hard for adults the first time it's indescribably difficult for a seven-year-old um, that said the kids were super excited they did a really great job and so that's pretty much um, took my musical focus, you know, for the, for the spring into the summer. And then administratively working with our executive director, we made sure that we were able to compensate our musicians for all of their lost work in the spring. Yeah, that's a huge task, but it sounds like you're keeping busy. <laughs> yeah, it's a worthwhile task. When we first started Winter's Gifts, did you think it was going to become the holiday fixture that it is now? No. Um, partly because I don't usually sort of think in those kinds of terms. But by about the third year, I started to be really hopeful that it would, particularly yeah. because of it being such an inclusive program, you know, besides the fun part. And then when we finally decided that since it was a long hike to the restrooms at the mission and there was nothing else to do to get rid of intermission. Then it just became really clear. I think that we, we developed a, you know, a good framework for those programs. Right. For a lot of our, our, our patrons, it's the highlight of the year. Yeah, I concur. It's a highlight for me for sure. Me too. So I have a technical question for you. Um, what is your feeling about the conducting baton with or without baton and when and why? Baton is very useful from an orchestral point of view because of the really rather difficult, different attack times for the different instruments. And so particularly if the orchestra is bigger and farther away, you have instruments that take longer to get, get a sound from the instrument than other instruments. So it's usually a really clean, clear baton is easier for, um, for the players to match instantaneously. I think that 
for choral music, say, you know, working um, with my church choir and et cetera, I think that um, a baton is sometimes not helpful because I feel like I can be more expressive with my hands. And so I kind of, you know, generally I just feel like whatever works best in the situation is perfectly fine. How do you feel about it, Daniel? It's, they, I always ask this question in the, the first session. And I talked about how that there's some orchestral conductors like, you know, Seiji Ozawa doesn't use a baton really anymore. And, and some, con- some orchestral conductors will put their baton down on a slow movement. Um, I, if I think if I'm doing something that has a lot of angularity in the writing, like some really contemporary music that's really rhythmic, that a baton can help with that. If I, when I've done honor choirs, sometimes I'll use a baton because it, because of the, the, the principle of angles, you can conduct a small, smaller gesture and still have a beat that's large enough for the honor choir to see just because it can be fatiguing to do a 12 hour rehearsal. But sometimes the baton is a little bit easier on the shoulder than conducting without. Absolutely. So it's, it's just adapting. I've, I've done, when preparing new pieces, which we do quite frequently, I've done rehearsals one way and changed midstream. Sometimes I can just ask the players, which works better for you? Yeah, I, uh, I've gone through waves where there, was, there were a couple of seasons where I conducted almost everything with the Coral Project with a baton, but I haven't done that very much lately. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's, the question's asked partly because this podcast is called No Baton Needed, so the conversation came up around it. When do you need it and when do you not? Along those lines, Barbara, what would you say is the most challenging piece that you've conducted for you? Nixon in China. China. Opera Nixon in China, by far. What made it challenging? It's really hard. <laughs> Just like rhythmically or keeping everyone together? Two things. It has passages that are rhythmically very difficult. It has passages that are extremely difficult for the singers. Um, and minimalism can be very difficult in concentration. The production that I did, which uh, was at Portland Opera, is a wonderful production. The start of the show is preceded by um, Tai Chi on the stage. Yeah. And there is a particular movement in the sequence where the downbeat has to happen or you'll be off for a long time. And what was challenging really for me in that, that situation was that I, was, um, I had to wait outside of the pit while this was going on. And then when I had to enter, so I had no mon- visual monitor to look at what was happening. And then when I came in, I had to walk and, and not fall and then give the downbeat the right foot. So you have to keep your eyes on the dancers the whole time? Except for the times when I couldn't see them. So I, I started to, um, at the rehearsals, to go through the entire Tai Chi sequence with them at rehearsal every time possible to, to um, make sure I got the first beat in the right place. That's wild. Good grief. <laughs> that is wild. I mean, along those lines, what's your uh, favorite piece, Ben, to conduct? Oh, that's a really hard question. In recent memory. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay. Definitely the Adagetto for Mahler 5. Oh, yeah. I have a couple favorite operas. Uh, Porgy and Bess, Marriage of Figaro, Madame Butterfly. 
of Mice and Men. And for sheer fun, my always favorite piece to conduct is uh, Piazzolla's Liber Tango. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's good stuff. Would you say there's anything that characterizes your style or your, your choice in programming in general? For the chamber orchestra, programming definitely has to do with how pieces fit together and what kind of experience they create. And particularly when we're doing new music um, that's premiering or is, you know, pretty unfamiliar, um, how people perceive that music has a lot to do with what came before it and what comes after it. So I try to create some kind of, you know, pretty, it's pretty much internal, but some kind of narrative in the way pieces fit together to, you know, play on people's emotions or to present an idea or to work in a theme. But as Daniel knows, when we put together uh, Winter's Gifts, we can work thematically, but then you, then it has to be broken down to see how the pieces actually work in context with each other. And sometimes really great pieces that even fit the theme, you know, get set aside for another time because it, it, the feeling isn't right or the timing doesn't feel right or, or you know, something just isn't just exactly the way you want it. Can you recall any pairs of pieces that you really wouldn't think would work well next to each other until you hear them? Huh. Or any like unexpected pairings you might have had in the program? Well, I'm trying to think because all the programs generally finally made it to the point where they were supposed to be together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You listen to it enough times, it sounds normal. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So no, no, I, no, nothing comes to mind, but now I'll have to go back and, you know, look at everything, figure that out. So we had a chance to do a recording session together at Skywalker for Mona Lynn Reese's um, Choose Life. I wanted to ask you how that opportunity came about, how the chance to record at Skywalker. Well, we were able to um, just rent Skywalker. And the, it came about because the piece was presented to us. It had been performed in Minnesota. And we thought it was an important piece and wanted to go ahead and do that. Can you talk a little bit about the piece for, the, for any of our listeners that might not know? The piece uh, entitled Choose Life was a major oratorio that was created um, as a ecumenical, actually, actually an interfaith piece, um, specifically written under some sort of grant by Mona Lynn Reese and with various various texts that was a Holocaust memorial piece. It was very, very moving. Um, it was originally created for a cathedral choir and a synagogue choir that worked together. Um, it, I know it was performed in Montana and a couple other places, and it had not been recorded um, professionally. Yeah, it was an exciting opportunity for us to, to be there and be part of it. And, and exciting music. And Mona Lynn Reese is just such a hoot. She's such an incredible person. Do you have a pre-show ritual? Do you do anything before the concert? Is there a walk around the building four times and say the name Monko Jerry as you're doing it or something? Do you have any sort of superstitious little things? Or I eat a banana. <laughs> really? Yeah, I, actually, you do. I think I've always seen you eating a banana before the concert, but I never made it a connection that that's a regular thing. I I have to do things to calm myself down because I'm I'm just naturally wired. So I I 
I do things to just sort of kind of streamline the energy. So if we're if we're at Mission Santa Clara, for example, sometimes I'll just stroll through the garden just a bit because it's such a tranquil space. Um, because there's a lot of noise in my head. Otherwise, I'm ah, overly bubbled. But I don't I don't have anything any real rituals. I know some people have some really fanciful things that they do, but nope, just the banana. Just a banana. Well, bananas are a mystical. Now I know. I know what I'm getting you for your birthday. <laughs> I have one question. Um, also, how has being a female conductor changed since you started conducting? Well, it's certainly less of a novelty, and it's, um, you know, it's most of the problems have never been with players or performers. You know, most of the problems come, like most of the problems in society, they, they come as systemic issues. So that would be in management, in representation, in payment, in those kind of things. But I think, you know, really good strides have been made, and hopefully that will continue. Well, it's, and with a leader like you, young musicians can say, hey, if she can do it, I can do it. They, they see the possibility, they see the opportunity. I think it's true for all underrepresented Abs Absolutely. Representation counts. Well, I'd like to go into a little bit of uh, just some small questions we have to wrap things up, if that's all right. Sure. These are a bunch of either or questions. Just uh, tell me which one you like and maybe a little bit about why. So uh, would you prefer Tchaikovsky's String Quartet number one or Schubert's String Quartet number 14, which is Death and the Maiden? Schubert. Do you prefer tea or coffee? Coffee. Do you prefer to be in the city or in the countryside? City. Your mugs in your cupboard right now, are they right side up or are they upside down? Right side up. Do you prefer truth or dare? Truth. Do you prefer to call or to text? Text. And uh, as far as seasons go, do you prefer the spring or the fall? Fall. All right. Well, <laughs> very decisive on all counts. Well, Barbara, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to uh, talk with us today. Uh, it's been a joy interviewing you. Thank you all very much. It's been a pleasure. Uh, likewise. Just th thank you for your time. And uh, we hope to hear your work again soon. Excellent. Thank you. Take care. So thank you all for listening uh, to the second episode of the Novaton Needed podcast. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Coral Project on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, and Instagram. And definitely sign up to receive emails from The Coral Project for up-to-the-minute announcements and exclusive email content by visiting us at coralproject.org. That's coralproject.org. Thank you and see you next time.